Well, I've done many weddings in my day, you know, probably 20 plus, and uh, I have these preconceived notions of how this ceremony is going to be and this religious practice. You know, you have the bride side, the groom side, but there was this one wedding I did, and uh, I realized I was in for a ride. And it was not going to be the preconceived notions I had of how a wedding was going to take place. One, these, this couple came from different ethnic backgrounds. And as the groom was here and the bride was here and I saw the groom side, um, it was very, very colorful. Uh, I didn't know you could wear that at a wedding, but I guess you can. Uh, and then it was the very stoic bride side on this side. And uh, as I was going through the ceremony, I didn't realize that weddings were so participatory. Uh, but there was a lot of participation as I was speaking and things like that from one of the sides. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what it was. I think the bride was taken aback the most when I asked the groom to kiss the bride. The grandma stood up and went, you go, boy. As he kissed um, his bride. Well, today we're going to see Jesus is going to shake up what people's notions are of religious practices and show us something different. And we're going to see three things. So if you take notes, you can write that down if you'd like. One, he is the author of spiritual practices. Two, he gives them richer meaning. And three, he is the one that brings them from death to life. So let's pay attention, shall we, to God's word and see what it says to us this morning. We're in Mark chapter 2, verses 18, all the way to 3-6. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and all the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth, on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. 
Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? To destroy him. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. We're going through the Gospel of Mark this winter and this spring. And it's really asking this question for us Who is Jesus? And we're seeing that different people, as we're going through the, the book of Mark, are confronted with that. And hopefully, we too are confronted with that. And here we get to some of the boiling points. Right? With the Pharisees, the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. And you can see that Jesus is showing what sets him apart from the practices that they're doing. Practices they think are very vital to their own culture. Specifically, fasting and the Sabbath. And the first question is arisen by people saying, why is it that disciples of the Pharisees... And John the Baptist, they fast, but Jesus, your disciples, do not fast. Now, fasting was something that happened usually a couple days of the week for these disciples of these people. And it would be not eating from sun up to sun down. The reasons that people would fast was that they were hoping that God would bring a mighty act upon the troubles and the problems going on in the land. Remember, Israel is being run by the Roman Empire at that time. And they want God to break through in that place. Also, fasting was to atone for sin. Or hopes that a disaster would not overtake the people. It was a sense of atonement. And lastly, fasting also was a place of mourning for the death of a loved one. People would fast because of that. So this is why these groups are fasting. And, and the question is, why isn't Jesus and his disciples fasting if this is the custom and the practice that's happening among disciples of teachers at that time? Well, Jesus gives this rationale. He uses an analogy, the idea of a wedding feast and the bridegroom, the groom of the wedding. And would people that are at a wedding, would they fast? Of course not. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of rejoicing. It's not a time of refraining from eating. In the same way, why would, if the bridegroom is here, talking really about himself, why would people that follow him fast? It's a time of rejoicing. Well, this is a really, really strong statement by Jesus we might not see. The only other time we see someone referring themselves as the bridegroom or the husband in an analogy in the Old Testament is when God refers to himself as the husband of Israel. 
So if you take that analogy all the way through, what is Jesus saying about himself? It's interesting, again, Jesus is trying to say he is the fulfillment. And if you think about why people are fasting, right, they want a mighty act to come to save Israel. Jesus is saying the mighty act has come. He has ushered in, remember what he said at the beginning of Mark? The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. He is saying, look, it's ushered in. Why should the disciples fast? How about atonement for sin? Remember, Jesus just earlier said he forgave the sins of the paralytic. Jesus is the fulfillment. I have forgiven sins. Why is there a need to fast around me? Lastly, the idea of mourning for death or sickness. Jesus is saying, I am the healer. I am the one that defeats death. You see, hanging around Jesus, why should you fast? He is the fulfillment. He fulfills what fasts are to do. His disciples are rejoicing in who he is. You think I might contriving these ideas. Jesus just keeps on going. Again, he calls himself the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He goes further in talking about Sabbath stuff. And he talks about how he equates himself to how David was able to do things that way. And he equates himself to David. Again, David is the great king. And Jesus is equating himself to that. Jesus is saying some pretty profound things. These aren't simply guru statements of rest and fasting and and Sabbath or those kind of things. What's the best for your own health and how will you live a self-actualized life? No, he is saying something much greater and higher than that. It's hard to put it into words, so I'll try to use it in an illustration. Imagine going to a Packer game with Jake Boldick. That's an amazing experience, first of all, to go to a game with Jake, right? He is a fun guy, and he will make the game fun experience for you. Well, imagine Jake, you know, raise his hand to the, the vendor, the hot dog guy, and say, give me a hot dog, and the hot dog gets passed down. And then, you know, you take your cash and you, you pass it down maybe to the guy. Maybe it's all virtual nowadays. I don't know if they still take cash. But, and let's say Jake said, no, I'm not paying, right? And he said a guru-esque statement like this. Listen, the Packers belong to the people, right? <laughs> Therefore, all hot dogs are for all people. So I get a hot dog for free, right? We'd be like, okay. Bro, just pay up, right? No, but that's not the kind of statement that Jesus is making. No, it would be like Jake saying this. I am the Green Bay Packers. Everything it is, I am. At that point, you know, you know Jake's fun and exciting and all those things, but you're like, you need to get your head checked, bro. Like, what are you saying? What is going on? Jesus is saying, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He 
is rest. He is the author of this. That is crazy. You know, I, again, in, in college, in high school, and, and even around here, when I talk to people about Jesus, usually it's, again, not a negative thing. People really don't have negative things to say about Jesus. Maybe you too. Like, he was a, a great teacher, right, or anything like that. Or, you know, he was this person in history that people cared about, right? But you know what really happened is that people like Paul that came after Jesus, he corrupted Jesus' message. See, Paul and those guys, those promoters, they elevated Jesus to a position that he just wasn't, right? That's why, you know, you get these epistles and these letters that elevate Jesus, and that's really not what Jesus was saying about himself. I would encourage anyone that believes that or thinks that, that you really need to see what Jesus says about himself. He is saying these crazy statements. I'm the son of man. I'm the Lord even of the Sabbath. I am the bridegroom. He is making statements about himself that are crazy. Again, these ideas are not mine. C.S. Lewis makes that argument, right? Either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or he is God himself. And that question is put to all of us. There's no middle ground. There's no, he's a great teacher. He says really wonderful things. No, he is saying he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That he is the bridegroom, God himself, the husband over the church. What do you do with that? He is the author of these spiritual practices. Well, he also gives the Sabbath fasting richer meaning. Something distinct about the Israelites in the Old Testament, especially Yahweh. You know, there, there were other gods at that time, and they were stories about them creating the world. That's the story of Yahweh, too, that he created the world. But there's also something unique about the God of Israel, that he is not just the creator of the world, he is the creator of time. He's over all time. You think about how he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. That he orders time. And this is incredibly important, how he orders time and how it matters to us and how we view time and the week. You can see that the Pharisees took this very, very seriously. There were 39 restrictions punishable by death of not obeying the Sabbath, that seventh day for rest. Whether it was tying a knot with two hands or harvesting grain, as you see disciples are doing there, plucking the heads of grain. But you see that Jesus, in being confronted by this view of the Sabbath, 
by the Pharisees, all these intricate details, he makes an argument to them. He makes an argument that, again, the Sabbath was not made for man, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That, again, the Sabbath is there not to enslave, but to free. It is good for you. It's not a curse, but something to help you. Some of us, when we think about Christianity, maybe we think it's just simply a bunch of rules and restrictions rather than for our benefit. And you can see how that could be true of how people treat the law like the Pharisees have done. They've used it as a sense of control or lording over others. And really they remove the very idea of connection to God from it. In our culture, though, we have less of a problem of honoring the Sabbath in that way to the other end. The pendulum goes over here. That we basically say, I'm going to do what I want on the Sabbath. I don't need to tell stories of what our culture has done because of our busyness. But this fear of missing out, FOMO, right? It has worn us out. That we have to fill our weekends with so much stuff that we don't want to miss out at all. Whether it's a trip here or a trip there, whether it's being involved in this activity or going to this or going to that. And I want to make sure my kids don't miss out too. I'll make sure they're at this sports activity or that sports activity. They're at this party or that party. And we are worn down as a culture. And survey and research after research is showing that. And you see that, how people are quickly irritated. And after the weekend is done, they are just worse off for it. But I think Jesus gives us the proper motivation of why we should rest. Why did God rest, right? Is it because he was tired? after six days of making the world, that he needed a day off? No. That is not why God had the Sabbath. No. He was satisfied. It was finished. And he lived in that completion of it. In the same way as Jesus talking about being the Lord of the Sabbath, he is the completion In him it is finished. In him we find rest. Many times when we think about rest ourselves or the Sabbath, we think, okay, if I do a spa treatment or if I, um, you know, spend time in the hammock or whatever it might be, this will fill me enough so that I can be able to take on what is in front of me, whatever it might be. truth is, if we see rest as basically just taking in those kind of times to indulge ourselves or to just get rested and feel better, rather than seeing Sabbath as an end in itself, in Jesus, we will not find real rest. If we see Sabbath as just a way to get enough power and strength in us so that we can tackle the next project, we will run into trouble. 
See, the Sabbath is not going to eliminate future work for us or how hard it is. But it's going to give us the peace that we need in the present circumstances we face. You remember the hobbits, right? The hobbits in Rivendale before they had to go to Mordor, right? Rivendale is the place of the elves, right? A place of rest, right? And they have this huge adventure before them of the Fellowship of the Rings, right? In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And here they are resting in Rivendale. And this is what it says. For a while, the hobbits continue to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendale that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten but cease to have power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and in every song. I love what Mark Buchanan says about this. He says the future, good or ill, was not forgotten but cease to have power over the present. That is Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling that. You can find rest in me. I mean, come on, this is like... You hear this from pastors, right? This is just their pitch to get you to church on Sunday, right? They just want the pews filled, right? That's why they have this Sabbath thing, right? No. It's actually good for you. God tells you to take this rest, to be filled with his presence, so that when they come, the troubles that are in front of you in the week, or whatever it might be, you know that He is with you. And He sustains you. Sabbath reminds you. Coming to worship reminds you of the good news of the fulfillment that comes from Christ. And that is what Jesus is saying about Himself. He also uses this other analogy, right? This new patch and new wineskins. He says, you know, you put, you know, new wine in old wineskins, it's going to burst them. Or, you know, a, a new patch and, um, you know, new things, it's going to tear all these things. And the question really is asked, will our hearts be able to hear what is being taught to us about Jesus' message? Or will it tear? Will we be able to hear the message that he is giving to us? I know we use this word heart a lot. Again, it's not the idea of an organ, but the seat of desire. Our wills, our passions, our motivations. And you can see this message of Jesus 
when it's given to the Pharisees, it causes the Pharisees to burst. Doesn't work. They can't get it. Their hearts are not there. They're hardened from this message. And we see this specifically the story of this man that his hand needs healing, it's withered. And Jesus asking the Pharisees this question who have said, oh, you, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Those are some of their restrictions. He asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to, to do harm? To save life or to kill? Again, they're looking to accuse him. And rather than answering the question, they are silent because they know it's a trap for them. Or they don't want to answer it. And then you see the great irony of the story at the end. As Jesus says, is it better to harm on the Sabbath? And then you see in verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The great irony is that Jesus said, is it good to heal or to do harm on the Sabbath? And here, the Pharisees actually go out and plot to do harm on the Sabbath, while Jesus is the one that actually brings rest, restoration, what the Sabbath is for, in healing this man's hand. How backwards is it that the Pharisees, their, their mortal enemies, the Herodians, you got to think the Herodians are the secular left, right? The ones that have sided with Rome. And the Pharisees are the right, right? They're the ones that are trying to preserve Israel and wrestle it away from Roman occupation and abide by these laws. These are political parties at the very extremes, even more than our culture, that would kill each other if they saw each other in the street alone. And here they plot together, they side together against Jesus. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. How is that possible? Right? How is it possible to get to such hardness of heart? Surely, none of us can get to that place, right? You know, I find one way to tell if our hearts are really hard is if you find yourself agreeing with someone you often disagree with because of their disdain of someone you really, really don't like or something you don't like. I often don't disagree, agree with this person. I often disagree with them. But you know what? They also really don't like this person. I agree. Oh, let's talk about that. Or really they don't like this thing. Oh, let's, let's jam about that. That your heart is so hard, it's so closed off. I will side with anyone I disagree with because I'm so against this thing. Here's the thing. Jesus is after restoring. He's after healing. And it says here he is angry. And that word in the Greek is very harsh. He is angry. He is angry at them 
Because their hearts are so hardened, they will not let him do the work upon them. To restore them. To heal them. Are there places in your life where people just touch and your bark and your bite is so loud and so hard when they start pressing those things? You know, maybe you should think about drinking less. You know, maybe you should think about how you relate to that person and what you're saying about that person behind their back. Maybe you should think about how you're spending money on these things. And Jesus wants to come and restore something in you, to work in you, to help deal with this addiction, to help deal with this division between someone else to help deal with the debt in your life but you're so hardened you're so prideful you will not allow him to work and bring life into this area of your life maybe we're closer to the pharisees and the herodians than we're willing to admit He is the one that brings these practices from death to life. You know, if we talk about Sabbath, I'd be very amiss to not talk about the great Presbyterian Eric Little. I know I talk about Eric a lot, but he's amazing. The true story of Eric Little, a runner from Scotland, That in the 1924 Olympics said, I will not run on the Sabbath. And in the movie Chariots of Fire that documents this true story of Harold Abrams who runs the hundred and Eric Little who runs the hundred but didn't run it because of the Sabbath runs then the 400 that is open to him. You get this juxtaposition, these two characters that look at Sabbath in two different ways. What's very fitting is this, they put two scenes next to each other. One, it's a scene of Harold Abrams who's being massaged before he has to run the 100 meter dash and he's talking to his friend. And his friend is wondering if he's excited for this big opportunity to win an Olympic gold medal. And you can see the pressure and anxiety that Harold Abrams has. And he says to a friend, he says, no, I feel this pressure because I have 10 seconds to prove my whole existence. And then the next scene is a scene of Eric Little running the 400. And it shows Eric Little in his crazy running style, right, that she ran with his head way back like this. And as he's running, 
the voice overlay of his word says, When I run, I feel his pleasure. Talking about the Lord. And here's the point. Harold Abrahams was exhausted even when he rested. Eric Little was rested even when he was working. Christian, Jesus offers that to you. When you are at your desk, when you are in a conflict, when you are in these places, when you are working hard or whatever it might be, because this world is hard, that you can find rest in Him in those moments. Jesus is the author of rest. He makes it richer. And he brings it to life. That's what we do on Sunday morning. We take him in. We take him in spiritually. That he would nourish us and sustain us as we go out in the week ahead. That we would say it is finished in him. That I don't have to prove myself to anyone. I don't have to wrestle and like scratch and claw to find significance. The 10 seconds of my life so someone will say I'm worth something. Jesus is saying to you right here at this table, you are worth something because it is finished in me. Amen? Oh, we, so, some of us, we need to hear that message so much. What are we doing to our kids? What are we doing to ourselves? Oh, I got to fill my life in with so much. I got to do so much. I got to... Do this, do that, then it will make my life worth something. Look how that person's doing something on Facebook, or that picture on Instagram, or whatever it might be. And Jesus is trying to speak to your hardened heart to say to you, you can find rest in me. Wherever you are, you don't have to prove yourself.